Hey, welcome. You've joined the UJ Faculty of Humanities podcast with each and every podcast that we'll do, going from each and every department within our faculty. There is something to learn, something to apply within industry, and it's always a relevant topic. So don't miss out. Enjoy. Hello, Mark. Hey, man. Good to see you. Good to see you. Um, so you have the experience in these things, these podcasts. Um, mm. So I want to start, uh, if you don't mind, with me just talking about you, um, because I'm treating you as the guest. Um, sure. And you have far more experience in terms of the things that we want to talk about today than I do. Um, so tell us a bit about yourself um, and what it is that um, interests you in matters of freedom of expression, freedom of speech. So I'm a practicing advocate. Um, my particular area of interest is on delineating the line between free speech and hate speech. And so I've been involved in a series of cases uh, around that. Um, as we speak, the Constitutional Court is delivering judgment in the matter of Quilani. So I am, it's a matter in which I appeared and I'm on tenterhooks waiting to find out uh, whether the court is going to declare um, our current hate speech law is unconstitutional. Um, so, yeah, it's a very riveting thing. In my in my other life, I run a uh, philosophy discussion show called Brain Nevat with uh, Jason Werbelov. Um Tell us, if you don't mind, I don't know what you're allowed to share about that case. Um, um, just uh, some details, uh, just to make the distinction between, in your mind, um, hate speech and ordinary speech clearer. Yes. So... The term hate speech is often an ambiguous word and it means lots of different things to different people. Our constitution gives us an indication of what it refers to, which is the advocacy of hatred on one of four grounds, race, gender, ethnicity, and religion, and that constitutes an incitement to cause harm. So what that means is that you are targeting one of those groups, you are calling um, for harm to be visited upon them. Uh, so it's not the same as merely saying something offensive about one of those groups. It's not about upsetting their feelings. It's about um, calling on third-party actors to go and visit an actual harm on them. The harm could be of a severely psychological nature. So it could be that um, you're calling for people to um, be abused in such a manner that it would cause something like post-traumatic stress syndrome, or it could be something like you know burning their property, um, or it could be to to physically harm them. Um, the nature of this case was that John Quilani um, wrote an article in 2008. The headline of the article was uh, Call Me Names But Gay Is Not Okay and there was a cartoon accompanying it of a man marrying a goat and the and a priest saying I now pronounce you um, um, man and goat. John neither authored the headline or, or the, um, the cartoon. Um, the substance of what his um, piece was about was about gay marriage. So if you recall um, South Africa was one of the, I think, the fifth nation um, in the world to have gay marriage, um, legally recognized by the state, and this happened in 2006. But up until then, there'd been much vigorous debate about whether gay marriage was at all possible. So um, whether it's it makes sense to talk about two people of the same sex getting married. Um, and then if it does make sense, whether it would be moral, and then secondly, whether it should be legal. Um, and there'd been lots of vigorous discussions. Parliamentarians had debated it as well. And John took the view that um, uh, gay marriage is immoral. Um, he, in many statements, had sort of said that he never wanted any harm to be visited upon gay people, but that he thought that the constitution should be changed 
um, so that uh, people of the same sex uh, couldn't get married. So that was the sort of substance of the article. Um, there was a hate speech complaint laid against him. Um, he was found liable in an equality court in 2017. Uh, he then took the matter on appeal where I acted for him in the uh, Supreme Court of Appeal. And we argued that the legislation which governs uh, hate speech, which is the Equality Act, um, is quite different from what the Constitution requires. And that what that legislation did was create a lot of ambiguity as to what the real test was. One of the questions was whether merely hurtful speech was sufficient. Um, the Supreme Court of Appeal ultimately held that that legislation was unconstitutional. That's what triggered the hearing to the Constitutional Court, but also importantly thought that there was good reason to expand the four categories I mentioned earlier to include sexual orientation. Um, and um, John didn't dispute this. In other words, there is a history of violence against gay people in South Africa, and they should be afforded that additional protection. But you must meet the full threshold. It's not sufficient to say things that the gay community would be hurt by um, or would want to disagree with, um, but actually that you're calling for harm to be perpetrated against them as a community. So that is what we await at the Constitutional Court as we speak. Okay, that's a good, clear um, lay of the land. Um, so look... Um, I have a lot of experience uh, in terms of, um, or I should have a lot of experience in terms of defending what is called freedom of speech um, as, a, as a professional philosopher. Um, I've come to even see the, the term freedom of speech as a bit of a red herring. Um, I see, I see there being, and this is, this is something I know we can discuss because you have a background in, in philosophy uh, and you have considerable um, uh, knowledge. Uh, and, uh, you know, you, um, I, I don't know if the bio is going to be coming out with this, but you've, you've authored at least one book in, in philosophy on, on the meaning of life. Um, I come to see um, uh, this issue as something that's not just about freedom of spe speech, freedom of expression. It's about the pursuit of truth. Um, and my concern, and I, and I think it's a concern that you share, um, is that um, it's easy to um, forget that what's going on is this, there's this need to pursue truth. Uh, and uh, the need to pursue truth requires that we um, sometimes say things that can be um, hurtful, maybe not intentionally hurtful, um, but at least some of the time we say it, most of the time, if we're pursuing things that, that are of, of deep importance in the pursuit of truth, we're going to say something that is, is considered to be hurtful to one person or one group of persons. Um, and my worry, um, as, as someone who's not in the legal profession, someone who doesn't deal with these things on a, on a very practical basis like you do, my worry um, as someone who's practicing philosophy is that um, I find the space to pursue truth getting smaller and smaller and smaller. There are these domains that we are not allowed into, not just as philosophers, but just as, as, as people with, living within a certain culture. We're not allowed to have discussions about many, 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 many topics. Um, and I've, I've come to become um, irritated by it. Not afraid, not, um, yeah, it's, it's irritation. Um, and one of the reasons why it's, it's turned from uh, maybe uh, fear to irritation is that I, I think I'm starting to see a bigger picture. Uh, I think I'm starting to see this as a uh, as the result of um, one subculture, let's say, coming to dominate uh, one larger culture and that larger culture dominating the world. Um, 
I, I don't know if, if, if I should, um, I mean, you should give me what, what you get from that uh, because I, I kind of, uh, I don't want to give you the, the full picture. I, I, I suspect that you have a similar view, uh, but if not, that's great. Uh, and I hope we disagree and I hope you upset me uh, to such a way that it, it actually uh, makes me upset. <laughs> not really. I'll say I'm just, I'm just, <laughs> yeah. um, Nothing you can say to me is going to upset me so badly that I stop uh, wanting to, to, to speak to you. So try your best. <laughs> so the show that I run, Brand Nevada, is premised on the notion that we bring on an expert in the field and we deliberately disagree with it on the show. We try and give as many possible counter arguments to their position as we can in the pursuit of truth, because we think the best way to find out what is true is to sharpen your sword against someone else's sword. Um, we often privately agree with the guest. We often think that they have the, the truth, but we try and summon up the best possible counter arguments because we think that's how you find out what's true. And it used to be the case that the academy was the place to find out what was true. And as you point out, that has significantly changed, that there's this other value that's come in, which is um, a sense of how people feel and that we need to make sure that you know, students at a university feel safe and that it's become an extension of a kindergarten environment where heaven forbid someone you know would feel uncomfortable in university where they'd have to confront an idea that they dislike you know i mean the poor little darlings and the problem with this approach of saying safety matters we need to warn people about this sort of stuff that they could explore in the classroom very hard to make positive change uh so if you think about the fight for gay rights in south africa okay it was the case that up until 1993, it was illegal to have gay sex. The notion of gay marriage would have been seen as completely and utterly unthinkable. The idea that you could um, call for such a right freely would be seen as a dramatic thing to do. Um, I interviewed Albie Sachs recently. Um, Albie Sachs authored the judgment that granted South Africans um, the ability to have gay marriage, an incredible judgment. And he says he marched at the first gay, gay pride rally in 1990. And he said, people marched with bags over their heads. Um, the, the level of fear that was present because you thought, if I out myself as gay, the social sanctions against me will be very severe. But those people bravely persisted and they persuaded people through reason that you want to have a system of equality, that people who love each other should have the same rights regardless of their sex or their sexual orientation. And I think that now probably is a very widely held view. But the only reason that they were able to do that was because of free speech. If you think about how many things we found out to be true over time or how many norms have shifted, it was because someone was bravely able to speak. Someone was able to say something like, slavery is a really bad thing and we should abolish it, even though so many people in this room own slaves. Um, you know, you had someone saying, you know, maybe the earth isn't the center of the universe. And they were persecuted as a heretic for saying this. So the default position in society is against free speech. People don't like to hear things that rattle their cages. It's amazing that we've managed to entrench this notion of free speech. But we must never forget that you don't win freedom. You don't get it in the bag. Every generation has to keep fighting for it. And I think we are now at a point where people are terrified of saying the wrong thing because they might lose their job, they might be socially shamed, um, and it's very, very hard to do that. And I think it's very notable that you said, I need to do what, what my role is as an academic, which is find out what is actually true. And I'm going to need to you know, 
ask some uncomfortable questions in that process. I may say things that are actually false along the way, but maybe in that process, I'm going to find out what's actually true and I need to be unencumbered. And it's terrifying that the academy has become one of the places where it's least possible to have those conversations. Yeah, that is so. Um, one of the things that attracted to me to um, philosophy um, and the academy in general was the idea that this is the space in which we can have these difficult conversations. Uh, like most people, I, I, I grew up with um, ideologies um, that weren't allowed to be questioned, um, um, you know, sacred no-go zones. Um, and I came to the space, the university, um, and I was, um, what's the word? Something was awakened in me. Um, and very quickly, I would say within a few months, I realized, no, even this space um, is, is, um, is um, st constrained by ideology. Um, you're allowed to speak freely within a certain uh, domain or certain domains. Uh, and as, and as I've um, uh, watched over the years, um, those domains have become few and far between, uh, further between. Um, um, and um, it's true. I think it's true what you say that we have to fight for it uh, because I do think that the default position is, is, you said against freedom of speech. I think the default position, something like that. That's, that's one way of putting it. Um, I think, let's, let's be fair to people. It's difficult to ask these, 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 these deep questions. Uh, people rely on heuristics. They don't have time to, to wrestle with the, the deep questions of being, um, that's a, a, a supposed to be our role. People like you and, and me, we're supposed to, to um, play this role in, soci in, in societies, plural, because there's not just one society. It's become, uh, this is an aside, but uh, it's just an, it, something that irritates me, people talking about society. Um, and they usually speak about it in, in terms of it's like some evil thing, but um, try falling into the middle of, uh, of, a, of a jungle. Uh, with no supplies and no humans around you wouldn't you wouldn't dislike society then um mini rant aside where was i um yes it's something that has to something that has to be cultivated um we you know the violence of of uh, a couple of weeks ago what i saw i saw many things but what i saw was um a, an absolute failure of um how do i put this in in a, in a way that um, doesn't get me in trouble. Um, look, with adequate critical reasoning skills and adequate um, et ethical training, people are less likely to be manipulated by uh, psychopathic political actors. Let's put it that way. Um, I think we saw organized violence that was motivated by people without the capacity to um, empathize because I think the uh, handful of instigators that call them do not actually um, have the capacity to, to care. I don't think they, um, I think they, they're doing things for their own gain, but you're always, you're always going to have those kinds of individuals in a society uh, and without proper, proper ethical training, uh, critical reasoning, um, uh, skills, um, you're going to be easily manipulated. Um, so it's important to, to, to cultivate those things. Um, the issue we have now is that, uh, in the academy, you have, um, you have disciplines that um, purport to be thinking critically uh, and purport to be um, uh, pursuing um, the good, though they wouldn't put it that way. Um, but when, when you examine it closer, there's something missing. Um, the way I see the academy is it's, it's, it's in, in the Western world, it's split between those who still believe in, in the pursuit of truth 
and those who believe in social justice um, as the higher uh, pursuit. So pursue social justice, even if it means jettisoning, jettisoning, jettisoning the pursuit of truth. Uh, because there's a, a kind of um, uh, pseudo cult has, or maybe a full full grown cult has has, uh, has grown around this idea of social justice. And maybe we can discuss that because I don't know what social justice means because I don't know what justice means. And I think as, as philosophers, we're supposed to say things like, what is justice? Before we get to, to, to you know, talking about what is social justice. Um, so maybe uh, maybe I can ask you as a as a uh, as a philosopher and someone in the legal profession, how do you understand justice? And and we don't have to spend too much long uh, too much time on this because it 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 uh, it's a centuries old debate, right? Yes. Yeah, so I think there's it's worth distinguishing between legal justice and moral justice. Now, one way of thinking about legal justice is that you abide by the rule of law. So in other words, you know in advance what the laws are it's possible for you to um, make your behavior comport with those laws. And that uh, if you are held liable, it is because you broke those laws. That doesn't tell us whether the laws themselves are morally just. So for example, you can have an evil law. Uh, you can have a law that says, this is a whites only bench and you weren't white and you sat on it. And so we have followed all the rules of the game to incarcerate you. And in that sense, legal justice um, was met. Um, moral justice, I think, is going to imply that, well, you, you're getting what you deserve based on the nature of your character, based on the deeds that you've performed, and that uh, you might think that the laws that you have um, ought to be themselves just. In other words, they fit to some kind of moral standard. And you could then plug in whichever particular moral standard you think that is, you know, one that minimizes suffering, one that... Um, is about respecting people's dignity. Our constitution, for example, has really a mixed set of moral assumptions. It's founded on the values of freedom, dignity, and equality. And sometimes those things are going to be in tension with each other. And sometimes it's going to be quite hard to discern what the just thing is. Social justice as a movement seems to largely um, be focused around identity. So this idea that there ought to be a perfect representation of different identity groups in society. And that if there isn't, uh, that that shows that there was some kind of systemic injustice that had occurred. So, for example, if you find in a particular environment that there are vastly more men than women, uh, the implication is that there is an insidious sexist um, system at play. Um, and similarly, you might think that if you had an overrepresentation of a certain racial group, the claim would be, you know, that group was given some unfair advantage um, and it was unjust. Now, the problem with this kind of analysis is that it doesn't take into account um, certain kinds of group preferences. So most people aren't very shocked when they find out that most nursery school teachers are women. Um, they are shocked when they find out that a lot of CEOs are men. Um, but they're not very shocked when they find out that you know a lot of people who repair roofs are men. Um, there's an interesting case in the States at the moment. So Harvard... Um, has tried to have proportional representativity on the grounds of race to the massive detriment of um, people who are of Asian descent. So if they just had a purely based merit system, 50% of the people at Harvard would be Asian Americans. Now, to my mind, it just strikes me as utterly repugnant to deny someone an opportunity at a high level institution because of the color of their skin. You know, you have... Uh, a group that has valorized education, 
Um, many of the people who'd apply to Harvard, their parents, um, you know, run a small laundromat and they live upstairs from the laundromat. And they said, you know, I want to make sure my kid gets to the best possible university. I'm going to scrimp and I'm going to save and I'm going to make sure they get the best extra lessons. And uh, to then go through that journey and then be told, sorry, the American dream isn't open to you because you're Asian just strikes me as horrible. And uh, as I said, this is part of the ill effects of this, you know, social justice movement, which really doesn't care about actual justice. Um, and so that's something that I think people should be aware of and you should be free to have the conversation. The point that you raise is that to utter that kind of thing, to deny fundamental tenets like racial representativity is to say something blasphemous. And I use that word advisedly because what we really have is a religious movement. Um, you know, as you sort of apply, you can have people that are devotees of a cult. Um, they say, well, the tenets of the cult are such that we have to say this and we, you know, we do religious type gestures and we have original sin, which is, I don't know, being born cisgendered or white or straight or whatever it is. And there's some kind of crazy race hierarchy that they have. I mean, it really is, if you ask the Ku Klux Klan, could you tell us who the best people are in society and who the worst are? They would draw a very similar pyramid to the social justice warriors. The social justice warriors just say, and afterwards we want to invert it so that we can reverse the power, the power lines. Um, but the, the, the way of thinking is very analogous to people that are deeply racist. So nothing that you've said to me is even remotely controversial. Um, um, I have the same uh, view of what's going on. Um, and it may surprise people listening to this that we've mentioned America. Um, you've, you've brought up the, uh, uh, something happening in America. They might be wondering why are two South Africans having this conversation? What they might not realize is that when America sneezes, <laughs> the rest of the world catches a cold. Um, and uh, some of us, and I think that you are in this boat, have been observing these movements um, in, in America, these, these uh, uh, rapid changes in, in society in America, and uh, seeing these um, shifts uh, start occurring here as well. And that's problematic. Uh, it's problematic because um, it's an uncritical acceptance of the moral judgments of one culture um, that has its own specific uh, history, its own set of uh, 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 socio-political conditions and historical um, history, uh, historical position. Um, and it's, it's accepted here. And, and for me in my lifetime, this is quite new. Um, America was a place um, that was inspiring in some ways, um, but what we didn't get from America, South Africans was uh, our moral um, outlook. That was something that was, um, it would have been quite strange to do. Um, and I, what, I, what I'm perceiving now is the, um, I said the uncritical acceptance of a moral outlook. I'm, it's, it's more the uncritical acceptance of, a, uh, of propaganda. Propaganda masquerading as uh, social justice in many instances. Propaganda masquerading as uh, a moral framework, um, a, a false moral framework. Um, I, I call it in my in my um, because I'm looking at different um, um, let's call it meta ethical theories. I call it a false dharma. Um, and maybe we can dis we can discuss this because I'd be really interested to hear your views. Um, we were speaking about justice. I don't know what justice is. Because um, when I put on, when I take off my Western hat, when I take off my Western hat, I, I'm not sure what this justice thing is. I put on the, the, the Indian hat or the African hat. 
and I don't know what it is. It seems like it, it's, a, it's a concept that comes from another culture. When I put on the Indian hat, when I put on the African hat, when I put on the ancient Greek Western hat, um, I can understand what a person is talking about when they, when they say justice in the moral sense. Um, because when I put on those hats, I understand um, the world to have, I understand human societies to have a morality, morality that is derived from a cosmic moral order when I put on these other hats, right? And I, and I suspect that this idea of justice is, is, is a, an attempt, historically it was an attempt to secularize a divine concept. And the same with dignity, which is inherently a, a divine concept. Um, and I think the, you, you mentioned religion, which is interesting because um, both of us perceive this as a, as a religious movement. Um, and, and you might have the same kind of visceral reaction to me. This is a religion that's being imposed upon me. Um, I don't like a religion being imposed upon me, but it's, it's, um, the, its practitioners are not aware that they are practicing a religion and that they are imposing a religion upon us. They are uh, trying to proselytize people um, without even, even being aware of what they're doing. So it's, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's so many orders removed from um, you know, the old missionary kind of uh, um, way of, of proselytizing people. But it, it is a kind of um, um, a new... Well, a neo, you might disagree with this, but a kind of neo-colonial, uh, neo-colonialism seems like you agree with it. Uh, but that's that's how I'm perceiving it now in in this in this um, in this historical shell that I am, uh, a South African of of um, uh, multicultural heritage. Yeah, I think that's a an interesting observation to say what you really have is this idea which starts in America. Um, you might think that it has some seeds in Europe because um, you've got critical theory, which then becomes critical racial theory and then gets sort of exported to South Africa. Um, you might think of it as being foreign to South Africa in some ways. And then that it must be imbibed in this religious manner that in other words, you don't question the fundamental tenets. To do that would be would be blasphemous, would be to be a dissident, to be a heretic. Um, and it's ultimately a you know an, an import from another place. I mean, one of the dead old white guys that these movements seem to venerate the most is Karl Marx. Um, you know, that there's a sort of link between a Marxist way of thinking and this, uh, you know, critical racial approach. And there's some irony in that. Um, so there's a kind of pick and choose when these standards apply. I think that's the other thing that's maybe frustrating. You know, both of us come from uh, an analytic philosophy tradition to an extent. Um, and we think that it's important that you are able to find out what is actually true, that you do so in language which is precise, uh, that you want to try and find out what something means. You're interested in what could justice mean, and you try and unpack that. And then what you have really from the continental tradition is obfuscation, um, that there's a, a sense of not knowing what the terms are, uh, that things are obtuse, um, and that you know, often when if you ask someone who holds these positions, please explain yourself, often they'll say, oh, you haven't even read the literature, you know, how dare you ask me such a question? An analytic philosopher wouldn't do that. They'd say, oh, well, that's an interesting question. Let me try and see if I can unpack it for you in layman's terms as easily and clearly as possible. And so there's a sense in which these movements seem to have something to hide and, and look a lot like religious movements in the sense of saying, oh, well, you haven't read the great books. You know, clearly you haven't steeped yourself in enough Gomorrah or, you know, uh, Jesuits, um, you know, interpretations of the fundamental text, whatever it is, to say you are not worthy and, you know, you dare not ask these questions. So that's that's very much a concern, and it's a concern for the academy. As you point out, you've got a bifurcated academy where there are certain disciplines that still 
want to fulfill their original telos, which is if you're in the sciences, you want to try and find out what is true, you know, in physics or in, you know, in chemistry. Um, and to some extent, those places have remained protected. Um, but, you know, and analytic philosophy is generally also trying to kind of use that scientific language. But we've seen um, English departments, sociology departments, those sorts of places, you know, really drink the Kool-Aid. Um, and they're much more concerned about seeing to do the fashionable thing as opposed to doing the thing which is what the discipline really requires. And that's you know, a real pity. I have a confession to make. So I, I drank much of the Kool-Aid early on. Uh, it was kind of like, um, you know, you grow up in a culture and you, it's kind of seeped into you. But I've, I've done some detoxic, uh, de- um, what is it? Um, what do they call these things? I just detoxed for uh, quite a few years now. So I can, still, I can still get into that mindset. I can still understand where people are coming from, at least the, the people who are um, sincere, uh, if not still misguided, but they're sincere about it. I think most of our colleagues are, most of my colleagues, at least in, in the continental tradition, are sincere. Um, but there's a lot of stuff that I find that I find just, just amusing. It seems like there's, no, there's, no, there's nothing there that I can get at. Uh, and it, it, it's almost intentionally... Um, um, deceptive, and, and I find that quite, um, it angers me. Um, there is a sense that um, you have this academic project that has, um, much of it is oriented toward truth, uh, and much of it, it seems to be, and I'm not talking about any specific tradition here or, or anything like that, much of it does seem to be oriented toward obfuscation. Um, sorry, I'm, I'm losing my English today. It was a language that was imposed upon me. Um, it, it's. I want. I want to go back though, um, because you mentioned something that um, that uh, that made me think, um, and I actually want to know from you, um, what is it that gives you your courage to pursue truth. What is it that motivates Mark Oppenheimer to, um, to speak the truth, despite uh, Mark Oppenheimer's awareness of the cultural movements, the religious, the quasi-religious, the um, cultish movements that uh, would seek to cancel Mark Oppenheimer? Yes, I think some of that was growing up in an environment where I was always free to speak my mind. Um, so, you know, as a young child, I would often say provocative things and adults would engage with me and we would debate it out. And, you know, I was, I was largely treated like an equal. So there's some sense in which you, it's a character thing that has to develop over time where you feel comfortable doing that, being provocative. And, you know, not everyone likes that. Uh, I think I had a, a difficult time as a youngster in some senses where authoritarian figures would, you know, want to discipline me or regularize me. Uh, I think it also helps in another sense that as an advocate, I work for myself. Um, you know, my um, I'm not an employee. And it's something that Douglas Murray has noted, that very rarely do you see anyone who works inside of a corporation being brave because they're terrified of losing their jobs. Um, it's why you don't see people in the academy being brave uh, because they're worried about what's the next thing. You know, I need to get tenure in the States or I want a promotion or, you know, maybe I won't get a book deal because I've said something. Um, and so there's a very, very small number of people who have kind of at the late stages of their career kind of go, okay, now I think I have enough stuff that I feel free to speak. Um, I, I think, 
you know, you've you've got, uh, you know, I, I am secular, so I think you've got one life to lead. And I think you want to lead an authentic life where you're not thinking about all the times in which you were a coward. You know, on your deathbed, you don't want to think. There were times when I could have spoken up. I saw madness around me and I knew what the right thing to say was and I did nothing. I think you squandered your life. And often I think people are squandering their lives for trinkets. In other words, well, you know, I'll get this promotion or I'll be able to buy this nicer version of this BM, whatever it is, you know. Um, and I think you want to be able to live a free life. And I think the more that people do do that, the more they encourage others. So I've tended to surround myself with people who have gone through some kind of cancellation attempt around them where someone has tried to attack them and they have stood up and they've said, I'm going to keep doing what I do, despite the fact that you hate me. Um, and, you know, maybe one of these days you'll engage with me honestly and maybe we'll change each other's minds, um, but I'm not going to cow. Um, I think that's one way of doing it is to find a sort of support network of people who are like-minded, uh, not necessarily on that you agree on the same kinds of ideas. I mean, I like to surround myself with people who I fundamentally disagree with. It's one of the virtues of a philosophy is you you want to disagree all the time, you know, because you care about what's true, but you care about something like this ability to speak freely without the fear of cancellation. Um, and so part of that is designing my life in that manner. I think there has also been a, a benefit for me, which is because I'm one of the few people who's willing to say things that are, um, I'd say, widely believed, but are viewed as controversial by uh, a minority elite. Um, doing that gives you an advantage because a lot of people say, that guy is pointing out the emperor has no clothes, and we all know that. Um, maybe he'd be a good lawyer for me. Um, so, you know, in other words, as just a mere thing to do in a marketplace, it's a strategically good idea um, because you stand out. People say, that guy's brave. When he argues my case, you know, I think he's going to do the best possible job for me. He's not going to be cowed by his opponents or cowed by a judge. Yeah, that's, um, I think that's, I mean, you raise some important points. Um, Let's talk about the the working for yourself um, aspect first. So, so it is um, true. Just speaking to colleagues, um, colleagues have families, academic colleagues. I mean, they, they have families. They have bills to pay. Um, they have to weigh up these things. Do it, and it's unfortunate that they have to do that. Uh, it used to be that, um, of course, in South Africa, we don't have tenureship per se. We just have we, we the permanent staff members or contracts staff members. Um, but it used to be a position that afforded you some kind of um, job security um the university says we want you to pursue truth we're going to protect your source of income uh just don't do anything stupid uh now doing something stupid means going against the conventional uh, narrative and what i'm calling the conventional narrative is is like you mentioned um or like you alluded to uh is not something that everyone believes it might not be uh it might not even be something that most people believe even even in the u.s it seems to be um, the case in the U.S. that most people don't believe. It's just a, it's a minority of people. Um, you made me think about something. Um, I've noticed a split in my students. Um, most students are very, and I should, um, you know, announce this in the podcast again. Uh, I'm speaking from South Africa. Uh, I teach at a South African university. Most of my students um, are very quiet. Um, they often have very bright opinions, but they are afraid to, to, to say them. Um, that's a majority of students. But I've noticed increasingly a, a group of students who are raised in a certain way, similar to the way you are raised, um, but they were raised with a certain ideology. Um, and those students, 
assume that whatever they say is true. Um, further, they assume that if you disagree with them, you must be a monster. Um, you're a monster who just won't listen. You don't agree with me because you weren't listening. Um, and that's, it's, that's quite fr frustrating because it's, the, the, it's a problem I'm not used to having. You know, I'm not used to having um, a kind of um, cultural-bound narcissism, um, if, you could, if you could call it that. It seems like it, it's, a, it's a, yeah, I'm sure you've noticed that as well. Um, it's, been, it's been something. Um, you mentioned America earlier, and, and you made me think about the, the coddling of the American mind when you're speaking about the uh, life should be like a kindergarten. You, you know, the university should be like a kindergarten, and maybe societies in general should be like kindergarten. Um, which is not real life. Real life is not like that. Um, but um, you have this culture that um, it's moving from, it's, it's making moves that the, um, the non-Western part of me uh, on a visceral level, level um, experiences as a neo-colonial imposition. That's, that's one way of putting it. Um, I could also put it in this way. It feels like somebody's trying to impose their religion on me. Um, and these things are, these things are, these are not small things. Um, what we find is the, 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 the mass, um, it's a mass movement to, it, it doesn't have to be conscious. It doesn't have to be some cabal of individuals trying to do this, uh, trying to impose this on it, but, but it's, it's something that's happening. Uh, people are, being radicalized in a specific way. Um, they don't realize they're being radicalized. They think they're becoming uh, morally just. Um, they think they're moving closer to the moral good. Um, and the reason that you and I have experienced pushback is because um, when we try to converse with them, it's like conversing with someone who is a, a religious zealot. Because in a, in a, in a phenomenological way, they are religious zealots. They're not actually interested in conversation because they themselves don't know what is at the foundation of their belief system. What's at the foundation seems to be faith or doctrine or ideology. Um, and they, they have to constantly flee, flee from that and form uh, communities of like-minded individuals. Um, yeah, does any of that uh, ring true to you? Yes, I think there's there's very much that concern that what you have is a kind of coalition of the supposedly righteous um, patting each other on the back, um, and you know there's there's a you know you were talking about well how do you get yourself out of this morass how do you avoid people acting in destructive ways you sort of pointed out like you know if people don't critically think they're more likely to go and perform acts of violence to engage in looting and things like that and you point. Uh, you know, to Jonathan Haidt's book, The Coddling of the American Mind. So, yeah, a, a couple of thoughts. I think the one is, the one is this view that I think people held, which is all this molly coddling at universities, um, all this kind of safetyism culture, um, you know, there's trigger warnings. It's all just a waste of time because the world's quite a hard place. And, you know, as soon as you get employed in a company, well, you're going to find out, you know, that you've got to kind of abide by the rules. And it hasn't played out that way. What's happened that that the social justice warriors have managed to do a very good job of getting themselves into positions of power in corporates. Um, so you really have an extension of this. Um, and the, of course, what it's what it's led to is not really a, a place of 
actual safety, it's led to environments of paranoia. So people are so worried about saying the wrong thing of possibly offending a coworker um, that they're missing out on all these kind of genuine relationships that they could have. You know, you think about something like in America, the view asking someone, where are you from is seen as a microaggression. You might think of that rather as an invitation to try and find out about this person who's different and say, oh, you're from another country. What is it like growing up there? What are your cultural traditions? Like what's different from you and me? What do we have in common? Like what can we learn from each other? How do we have this exchange? And I think that's different from, as you point out, a kind of colonial imposition that the imperialist basically says, I know what's true and you're a heathen and you need to abandon your position and you need to imbibe my Kool-Aid. Uh, and that's the kind of thing that you're seeing from, as you say, this American critical race theory being imposed on people is to say, you know, there is no way out of this, but through it, you have to accept it. Um, so if you think about those Robin D'Angelo seminars, you know, one of the claims to say that based on the color of your skin, you are a certain way. And if you deny that, you're just in denial um, and you haven't accepted the truth and it's further evidence of your racism. So you have this Kafka trap where there is no way out but to accept it, to say, I am a racist. That's the only way that you can possibly win the game. Um, and so then you have, uh, you know, one of my one of my friends sort of said, you know, she's, she's glad to realize that she's a racist. And I said, on what scale of racist are you on you know you're level one racist or a level 10 racist and she gave me the absolute perfect answer which was she said i'm a four aspiring to be a zero but knowing that i can probably only ever get to a two because there'll always be this sort of levels of racism that i can't fully cleanse on my system despite my desires because the idea is if i say i'm a level 10 racist then i'm like you know a neo-nazi then i'm like burning crosses on people's lawns you know if i say i'm a zero racist then i'm you know i haven't accepted my truth so just walking that perfect kind of middle line of the right amount of racist that i need to be so that i can be socially acceptable you know i found that kind of amazing um but one of the values that you want to inculcate in people is the idea that human beings make mistakes um that we're fallible that we don't know what's true that um, we need to be have that ability to find out what's true. And that means asking hard questions. That means having a, a set of laws that protect people asking these hard questions, saying things that we disagree with. Um, and if we just think, but I know, you know, I've gotten it from the divine source of, you know, Yahweh or Robin D'Angelo. And so how dare you question, you know, my beliefs and how I feel. That's a, it's a recipe for disaster. What's interesting as well, if you look at the Soviet Union, you know, this is sort of Marxism in practice where you had, you know, in China and Russia and other Marxist countries, 100 million people perish. These things have real world consequences. You also found that once the, the you know, the, the Berlin Wall, you know, collapsed and the Soviet Union broke apart, a whole bunch of people suddenly snapped out of it. And they said, like, you know, we never really believed this stuff. We were just operating on a fear. And we thought that if we said the wrong thing, we were going to be punished and be stuck in the gulag. But we never really genuinely believed this stuff. And I think that's worth popping that bubble. If you have honest conversations with your colleagues, a whole bunch of them are going to publicly profess all this sort of stuff, you know, say, well, that's what I need to do to kind of keep my job or be popular or not be disliked. But they don't believe it. And the worry with leading an inauthentic life like that is that on your deathbed, you're going to say, I publicly espoused a lie that I didn't believe. Was that a life worth living? You know? Maybe I had a bunch of fake friends around me who kind of patted me on the back. They didn't believe this stuff either. You know, um, I sold my colleagues down the river so I could get advancements. I drove a slightly nicer car. 
Was that a life worth living? I think not. Yeah, I'm not making this up. A split second before you 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 said on your deathbed, I was thinking of Socrates. Um, and um, for those who are watching this that don't know it, the um, the um, it's just a paraphrase of what Socrates said. The unex exactly that's Mark Oppenheimer's uh, book, uh, Drinking Hemlock, uh, conversations about the philosophy of law. Mark Oppenheimer and Helen Sarah Robertson, uh, both uh, fantastic um, thinkers, fantastic philosophers, and Mark Oppenheimer is also a fantastic lawyer. If you need the, if you need defense, um, and that's so for, um, for those of you that want to see what the book looks like, um, this is Socrates, uh, you know, about to drink the hemlock, you know, proclaiming truth uh, before before he dies, and so our book is um, called Drinking Hemlock, and it's about trying to find out what is just in law, you know, where there's a moral connection between the law. Uh, but yeah, I couldn't resist uh, doing a quick little punt. Who is that published by? Uh, that's published by Obsidian Worlds. Um, so it's the same publisher as uh, Helen Ziller's book, uh, Go Work, Go Broke. Available, uh, available at fine bookstores everywhere. Um, yeah, so that, that cover is, is interesting because that's the death of Socrates. Of course, there are many versions of that painting. Uh, I don't remember the, the specific um, painter of that, uh, but it is my favorite version as well. Um, and what, for those who don't know what Socrates is doing, that Socrates is the ancient Greek philosopher. Um, he said, and this is paraphrasing him, the unexamined life is not worth living. Um, and that's something that I, he was the first philosopher I studied in, in philosophy. It could have been completely different. Maybe I could have been um, given marks and I could have not wanted to study philosophy at all. <laughs> but I, but I was the first thinker I was introduced to in, in a philosophy class was uh, Socrates. Um, and I think that's, that's one of the reasons why I stayed this long, despite my disappointments along the way. Um, this idea, this courageous um, devotion to the pursuit of truth. Um, to the extent that you upset people um, in your society so much that they just want to get rid of you, um, put you on on trial just so that you can stop talking and flee to you know a neighboring island or whatever it is. But he says, no, I'm just going to I'm going to accept my my the judgment. Um, and as I'm drinking the hemlock, as I'm um, um, instituting the death penalty unto myself, um, I'm going to argue a point. Um, and that's. Um, that's a powerful thing to to people in this in this field, philosophy, um, law, um, and throughout history, maybe for most of history in most most parts of the world, um, that's not a common. It's not a common experience. What Socrates is is, is embodying there, um, the acquisition of meaning in life through the pursuit of truth that's, that Socrates um, obtained, that level of, of pursuit of truth that's rare, um, but also the sense that I should pursue truth above all else, that is also unfortunately quite rare amongst um, human beings. I don't quite know why, um, but uh, I, should, I should clarify a point earlier. Um, I, I didn't mean to say that um, people engaged in acts of public violence or that they do engage in acts of public violence because of a lack of critical thinking and a lack of um, ethical uh, training. Um, I suggested that um, without those skill sets, they're more easily manipulated 
by people without a conscience. <laughs> so I think most people, most people do have a conscience, but they can be made to do evil things, sometimes in banal ways, right? Um, they can go along with a murderous uh, genocidal re regime um, just through laziness or apathy or fear, right? Um, I actually think, I know that there's a dark side to human nature, but I wouldn't call myself optimistic. I would say that um, most people are oriented toward the good, um, but some people are just estranged, cosmically estranged from the good. And we have to be careful about those people because um, if, if, if they are allowed to uh, produce a quasi-religion, um, that's going to be quite uh, attractive to, to, to most people. Anyway, so... Um, it's a bit of a mess. <laughs> it's a bit of a mess as we sit here. Um, the sad thing is that the mess is being um, presented in a way that's, it's being presented as progress. Um, there's no robust theory of progress underwriting it, but it is being presented by progress. And, and one way of, of, of explaining why it's such a mess is that, or why it's, it's so bad is that um, I think political actors have got a better sense of how to manipulate the terminology, how to manipulate the agitprop so that it sounds like you have to be a monster to even question the slogans they throw out, right? So if you, if you, if you label yourself as a progressive, you automatically put yourself on the side of the good, right? Despite the fact that you have not given a theory of what you mean by a progress, uh, you haven't said explicitly where you want to aim uh, your society at, or why it would be a good thing. You haven't done any of those things, but you have labels yourself a progressive. I can do it right now. I'm a progressive. There I am. I'm the good guy. You're the bad guy. Um, so <laughs> it's um. So I guess what hap what needs to happen is um. A lot of it's re reclaiming um, uh, linguistic terrain. Right? So I might consider myself a progressive, uh, even if I believe, and I'm just speaking hypothetically, I might consider myself a progressive according to my um, culture's morality, right? But my culture's, uh, my culture's morality might have a, a definition and understanding of progress that is completely antithetical to your understanding of progress, right? Um, and uh, yeah. I do actually think of myself as progressive, but not in, <laughs> not in terms of the, the contemporary um, far left definition of progress. Um, I guess it's going back to my irritation that I mentioned earlier. Um, it's just one subculture. It's not, it's not even representative of the Western tradition as, as even the contemporary analytic uh, or even continental Western uh, philosophical traditions. It's not a representative of that at all. It's something that emerged somehow. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with the, the, the breakdown of hierarchies, um, which was, result from the, the, you know, ironically secularism. Uh, and um, um, you, you go further down the chain and the family broke down. So that um, now what you see is um, um, a sibling society in the West, much of the West, uh, that's Robert Bly's term, um, a sibling society. What I'm viewing from my perspective is what, you know, what I just said, a sibling society. I don't see the adults. I don't see the, the elders. Um, I see a lot of uh, very unhealthy children 
uh, of various ages in various adult bodies um, trying to trying to play at being um, trying to play at being uh, morally uh, trying to play at adults who have some grasp of morality um, but they they were not properly initiated into adulthood an initiation doesn't require doesn't necessarily require some kind of violence upon you but it does um, it it has to happen, I think. Human beings are the sorts of creatures, I think, that need to be initiated into adulthood. That initiation could be go off now and perform service um, for six months, uh, community service. Um, all these systems that historically were in place to ensure, or at least um, not guarantee even, but to, to, have, to give children some kind of, of chance at, at becoming adults and eventually elders, that has been decimated. Um, that's what I'm seeing. I don't know if you want to speak to that, if any of that rings true to you. Yeah, a lot to unpack. So I think you're right to point out this tension between, let's say, progressive values and tradition, um, that there are going to be certain traditions that were bad ideas, um, that were repressive, that were um, discriminatory, and that you want to be able to jet jettison those traditions. There are others which it's hard to know what their purpose is. Uh, until you take them away. And I think what you found, you know, we've talked about this sort of idea of social justice movements being religious in nature. And I think part of that is because we have seen a massive decline in religious attendance. But I think there's still a yearning desire for people to have that kind of structure. In other words, someone who tells you what the liturgy is, what you need to believe, what you need to do, so that you can be good. Um, so we discard the church because the church is homophobic or racist or whatever else you want to say about it. So we discard the other kinds of religious movements, but people have the desire. And so, you know, that ideological position can then step in. Um, but you haven't, you know, I think there was a sort of interesting change with someone like, you know, Peter Bogosian um, wrote a book called A Manual for Creating Atheists. Um, and the idea was to proselytize in a manner where you could, you know, show people the contradictions in religious belief so that they would abandon their faith. And now he's of the view that, you know, religious people aren't the problem. Um, you know, religious people, you know, um, often were, you know, quite kind or less likely to kind of engage in acts of violence. You know, his concern is with those on the far left. And he says they're not open to persuasion. They're not open to discussions. You know, they've just shut that conversation down in a way that maybe looks a lot more like, you know, um, religions of the, the Dark Ages. Um, so... I think the the idea was if you could get people to stop believing in God, that would come with all sorts of other virtues, which is that they would be rational and that they would, um, you know, abide by some kind of, you know, worthy moral structure. It's not clear that that stuff comes with it, you know, that tossing out God for, let's say, you think, well, I don't want to believe in God because I believe that God's a bigot, doesn't really get you to a kind of reasoned view on things. Um so yeah, that's the one thing I think is to think about which traditions are we jettisoning that could be very useful? Are we breaking down community structures that have some purpose? Um, I mean, one of the things that we've seen in South Africa, you know, with with the looting and the violence was that the state really wasn't there to assist people, um, that it was communities that stepped forward, that protected each other and protected their property and protected their families. Um, and, you know, one of the worries, you know, I'm a classical liberal, so I think individuals matter enormously. Um, but there's a worry that, you know, one way to be uh, an individual is to be ensconced in a community um, and to understand yourself through other people, that kind of Ubuntu value of 
you know, you are who you are through others. And there's a concern that we're eroding the role of communities. The other thing that you've spoken about quite a bit is that South Africa is a pluralist place. You know, you have a variety of different traditions um, and there's a concern that we're aiming towards a monoculture. We're definitely seeing it on, on language. So, for example, um, even though there is a constitutional right to have tertiary education in your mother tongue, and it's a very unusual right to have in a constitution, but it's there, we've seen that um, universities have largely jettisoned um, non-English languages. There's been a bunch of litigation around universities that used to teach in Afrikaans, um, but ultimately this you know, could be used you know, to suppress Venda or Zulu or Kosa. Um, and the idea that everyone must speak the same language, you might think is eroding this diversity. Um, ultimately, to my mind, what you, what you want in a pluralist society is the idea that everyone can swing their fist to the edge of your nose and no further, that you are free to lead a life of your choosing, provided you don't go and harm anyone else. And that there are going to be disputes about what the good life is. You know, this has often played itself out in religious disputes. People go, well, I think God is Yahweh and I think God is Allah and I think God is Krishna. You know, that you want to say, well, I don't know. I'm fallible. I don't have the, the knowledge. So I'm going to let you be free to experiment, to find out. But don't, you know, forcibly impose that on me. You should be free to try and persuade me through reason. Um, you know, I, you might not like the idea of a missionary knocking on your door and saying, have you heard the good news? Um, but you're always free to say, I don't want to hear it, or, you know, here's my counter position. It's very different to being forcibly converted. And I think what the more coercion that you have in a society, the more sanctions there are for not being adherent to the faith, the more coercive it becomes. And I think that's what we're seeing with the social justice movement is to say, if you don't drink the Kool-Aid, we're going to ensure that you're publicly cancelled. Other thing I think about is where you have conversations matters enormously. So the problem I have with something like Twitter is that it's very, very easy to, you know, have you, what you say taken out of context, that you're, you know, there's a sort of a Wellian framework of if you limit the amount of language available to someone, they can only think certain things. You have to speak in a very uh, sort of loud way on Twitter. You know, we've been having a conversation for roughly an hour and we can explore a lot of nuance. I think uh, it's very unlikely that either of us are going to suffer any cancellation for two reasons. The one is the kind of person who is listening to this podcast or watching it on YouTube is the kind of person who has the ability to sit back and listen and think about it and go, okay, well, there's, you know, there's an interesting view here. Maybe I disagree with this. Ah, but it's been addressed later. The person on Twitter is someone who's like, I've read this thing. It's 140 characters and I'm really angry and, you know, I want blood. Uh, so it's a different caliber of person that you're engaging with. There's also a sense in which we're looking at each other in the eye. You can sort of tell that I'm engaging in this conversation in good faith. That when I say certain things, you can tell whether I'm cracking a joke, whether I mean it sincerely. You know, the problem with a lot of online engagement is it's anonymous. So you say, I don't mind if this person gets cancelled. I don't even know them. Um, you know, so, and I can't tell if they're cracking a joke or not because it's just text. So very poor place to have conversations. Um, one other little thing that I thought I'd leave you with is you've talked about this idea of people um generally having a conscience and generally wanting to be sourced in some sort of universal good. There's a famous um, thought experiment called the Ring of Gyges. And the Ring of Gyges uh, is basically an invisibility ring. And Gyges puts on the ring and when cloaked in, in invisibility, uses the opportunity to his, uh, his game. He goes around stealing and, you know, having sex with people that he wouldn't have access to otherwise, you know, really because there are no consequences um, for what he does because he can't be caught. He just... Um, you know, engages in all this immoral behavior. And the question is, if you gave people that ring of gaijis, how would they behave? 
And what we've seen is that when you give people the cloak of you know mass looting of mass protest, a lot of people say, "I want my free TV." You know, um, you know, I can get away with this, and there is really no internal moral narrative going on for those people. It's just opportunism. And you had people who weren't desperate. Um, you had people who were like, there's a guy who was a fund manager who went and thought, now's my chance to go and get some free expensive stuff because I I can hide in the mob. And I think a lot of people are willing to do that. They don't actually have any kind of internal directing force. They just look left, they look right, and they say, what's the mob doing? I'm going to go along with that because it seems to be the easy way. And I think we don't just find it in angry mobs burning things down and stealing stuff. We see it in workplaces. We see it in the academy. Instead of people being rooted in some kind of internal deliberation, they just go, what is everyone else doing? Um, so it, like you mentioned, we have been speaking for an hour. Um, I have a couple more things I want us to, to say if you, if you have a bit more time. Um, but yeah, I, I roughly agreed with everything you said there. Um, I, I would um, want to temper slightly what you said, uh, the last thing about the, the Ring of Gaiji's um, thought experiment. Um, I don't know if, if, if um, let's put it this way. Um, most people in the communities that um, housed the, the eventual looters and rioters did not engage in those activities. And, and many of them now are actually assisting the police to um, retrieve the stolen items. So I take some comfort in that, the idea that most people wouldn't, didn't engage in those things. Um, though still far too many people did, and, and many of them, like you correctly pointed out, really didn't need to at all. And they did seem to use the cloak of anonymity afforded to them by the, the mob, like you, you so um, nicely put it. They, they did do that, uh, and that is, that is troubling. Um, we were speaking about the substitution hypothesis, the idea that um, people traditionally found meaning via divine pursuits, uh, what is now called religious pursuits, I like divinity. <laughs> that's a separate conversation. We might bring it in, but um, that's the substitution hypothesis that what's happening now is a quasi-religious movement um, that is um, giving people the meaning that uh, in secular societies, they can't, atheistic societies that they can't get from, from religion because there's no a formal religion there. Uh, Bogosian um, doesn't agree with substitution hypothesis. I don't know his argument. Um, maybe I'll change my mind when I, when I listen to it or, or read it. But I, I do think there's, there's something like that going on. I do think that people are getting meaning um, from their quasi-religious frame, framework. Um, um, it, it, it is, it quite, it, and it's quite, um, um, I think it's quite clear that that's happening. Um, um, but we have to make explicit what we're saying here because it might not be clear to most of our listeners we are seeing things and we have the benefit of, of examining these things closely over time, watching things unfold in the US and the UK. Um, and now things are happening here in, in South Africa. Um, what I'm saying, and I think you're saying this as well, I'm just going to say that it's what I'm saying and, and you can clarify whether you believe it or not. What I'm saying is that um, we have this multicultural society or whatever you want to call it, a pluralistic society in South Africa. Um, it has different cultures. Uh, we come from different parts of the world. My ancestors came from um, um, India, the land now knows, known as India. Um, but in, in, according to Indians, it's not called India because India is a new word. Um, and Hindu is a new word. But anyway, that's another, another thing. 
um, we have these, so we have not just different cultures, but different histories, um, you know, ancient philosophical histories that are in, in, in many ways, actually complementary. in many ways that we, we arrive at the same um, uh, truths. Uh, but in other ways, um, there's a lot of tension there. Um, and what I see happening is this, this new religious movement um, that is unconsciously religious, um, that might believe itself to be atheistic, that might believe its movements to be secular, um, but uh, none of that is true. And I also see um, a kind of, I, I see madness arising from a chronic lack of meaning. I think a chronic lack of meaning can do terrible things to a human being. Um, it can do many things to a human, a human being, um, it can even make them question some fundamental aspects of their biological reality or reality itself. And a further problem here is that what we are seeing is a subculture trying to um, recreate reality along the lines of um, delusional thought, right? What, what most people currently and most people throughout history would have thought of as delusions are now being... Um, are now being seen as just a different way of, of being or a different way of viewing reality, um, no less valuable. Uh, but most, actually, not even no less valuable, maybe more valuable than whatever's come before. Right? Progress would be orienting towards uh, orienting societies, um, even former colonies, toward um, the perspective of um, what I would perceive to be delusional, delusional people. Uh, and I'm choosing my words carefully. Um, and, and you know why I'm choosing my words carefully. Um, I think mental illness is a serious thing. Um, I think, I think it's, it can be a tragic thing. Um, and what makes it doubly tragic is um, rearranging societies um, in such a way that um, those with mental illness actually believe that their delusions are true. And I think there's a fundamental... I would call it, I'm trying to be uh, secular here. I would call it a fundamental crime against humanity. But more than that, I think it's a sin. I don't know how much you agree with there, but yeah. So I just recorded an episode with a guy called Justin Garçon, who teaches at Hunter College in the States. He's written a book called um, Madness of Philosophical Inquiry. And he looks at how madness can be used strategically for individuals. Um, that in order to escape a, a bitter world, for example, you might want to um, go into a deluded state so you don't have to confront how bad things are. There's some sense in which I think that you, you do find um, a lot of people who have uh, mental disorders involved in social justice warrior movements, partly because I think they felt marginalized and they, some of them had legitimate gripes um, and you know wanted to kind of remake society in a way that would make life easier for them. Uh, to some extent, I am one of those people. So. Um, my handwriting is so bad that I had to type all of my exams from matric through university through the bar exams. Um, and I would basically be a, a bricklayer were it not for there being some accommodations to allow me to type. Um, and I think there are probably other ways in which we could kind of make society easier for people that are vulnerable. You know, thinking about a wheelchair ramp, you know, provides accessibility. But there's some way in which it can become dangerous, which is when you feed into someone's delusion. Um, and you remake society in such a manner 
that it caters for a, a minority of people in a way that doesn't actually serve them and isn't to the benefit of anyone else. I often think as well that there's some exploitation going on with these movements. So, you know, you'll have seen plenty of footage of people at, at rallies screaming and crying and sobbing. And, you know, you think, wow, this must be a really serious moral issue. Look how upset this person is. But if you're dealing with someone who's mentally unhinged um, and you're basically putting them at the front lines because you want, you know, some good reporting of it so that people will then take you seriously, you're exploiting that person. You know, this is someone who you've exposed to severe mental distress for some political gain. I think there's something deeply immoral about that. I think we also need to be able to calibrate, you know, how serious the situation is without recourse to feelings. Um, you know, you want rational arguments. And I think a lot of people, um, you know, it takes a lot for me to scream and shout and, and cry. You know, so if I see someone doing that, my immediate feeling is one of empathy to so say, wow, there must be something serious. But if you're, if your calibration levels are off, if that's the kind of thing that people do on a regular basis, then it's quite hard to see through the noise and know what are the serious things that we should be combating as a society. You know, the advantage of putting forward an argument in a cold clinical way with access to lots of evidence is that we can then do that adjudication exercise and we can work out what are the things we should be prioritizing. Um, you know, I think one of the reasons why it's quite hard to be a cold rationalist is that a lot of people really are persuaded by vivid stories. Um, that they're persuaded by you know emotional gestures they're persuaded by theater and um you know if you think about a lot of the discussion around police reform in america you know and whether you have a, a racist police force that should be abolished you know you can have someone like sam harris who can coldly take you through the through the data and sort of say let's spend two hours looking at whether there is a fundamental problem here or what that particular fundamental problem is the question is whether that's nearly as effective as a rally you know um, or as a significant event like George Floyd being killed. Um, you know, how persuasive can you be in the light of vivid footage? Um, so very hard to have a conversation when you've got two kinds of atmospheres going on, the one being about analysis, data, argument, and the other one being about theater and emotion. Now, as I said, I think there's going to be times when theater and emotion are the right responses. Um, and maybe those that are interested in truth-seeking need to inject some of that into their arguments for the sake of being persuasive, provided that they don't um, annihilate the truth in the process. You know, the worry about using your enemy's weapons is that you can become your own enemy. I think that's a good way to, to end off our conversation. Um, it was a conversation about having conversations, which is um, we need more conversations like that. Um, the, the, the need to have these, these, these free and open, fairly free and open um, dialogues around these issues of, of importance. Um, Mark, it's been good. Um, it's our first long chat like this. Um, we've had some um, short conversations here and there. Um, it's, it's, it's great. Um, I want to keep you know, chatting to you about these issues. Um, we haven't really disagreed about anything, so we should find something we disagree on. Um, yeah, and, I, and I'll come up with a list maybe and you come up. <laughs> with a list and we have like you know um we'll try to upset each other um but yeah this is how philosophers make friends as we go like let's find something to fight about it's going to be the best <laughs> yes i i think um i think uh the moon is made of green cheese uh, that's a, that's, a, <laughs> that's the only thing i could come up with um yeah so it's been good um and uh you know i wish you well with the case that you're involved in um yeah and i hope you go from strength to strength i i we saw your book uh, what is it, Drinking hem Hemlock? 
Yes, Drinking Hemlock, Conversations About the Philosophy of Law. It's available on Amazon. And we've, we've spoken quite a lot about the meaning of life. So I've co-authored a book with David Benatar and Thaddeus Metz uh, and Jason Werbelov um, called Conversations About the Meaning of Life, which is also available on Amazon. You can get a, a printed copy or a digital copy. And if you like these kind of conversations, um, you know the show that I own is called Brain and a Vat. And we've had, uh, I think, over, over 70 guests talking about all sorts of weird and wonderful things where we disagree vernedly and politely with our guests yes so there you go uh, a lot of uh, mark oppenheimer material for you to go through um, thanks mark <laughs>